Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to keep to donate to keep the special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Martha. Thanks, Batusa. Um, my name's Martha. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. And it's an honor to be asked to do anything for OA. I didn't always feel this way, but now I know this, this program really saved my life and um, literally saved my life and gave me a much better life. Um, and I would like to thank um, Nikki for inviting me to speak here and, um, and also my sponsor, Leslie. Um, and all my sisters in abstinence, like Lucy and Atisa and Veronica and Brock and um, so let's see. Um, just I'll give you my sort of statistics. Um, I'm coming up. January 5th will be three years uh, for me without vomiting, which is a miracle because I had been um, overeating and vomiting on and off since the age of 17. So for um, well over 20 years um, before I came here, and um, you know, I've been obsessed with my body and with food since probably like about nine years old. Um, I've yo-yoed up and down from about 110 pounds to 145 pounds, like more times than I can count. You know, it's to this for the longest time, not, not so much anymore, but you could look in my closet and think that it belonged to several people because I had like some size zeros and some size tens and everything in between and I would never get rid of anything because you never knew when I was going to need it again. And I remember my, my sister, both of my sisters are total normies. I'm also in AA, so, and it's weird because like when we were growing up, my sisters were all, my all my siblings were like drugging and drinking and shoplifting and I was this super straight A goody two shoes and then, you know, as it turns out, I have like, you know, this hideously destructive eating disorder and an alcoholic. <laughs> So, um, but my sister just like very innocently commented once, like she's like, it must be so hard to shop because you just never know what size you're going to be. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of true. Um, but let me tell you, um, you know, just to, to paraphrase somebody who, from another program, but food has always fixed in me something that really needs fixing. Like, um, I grew up in a really um, kind of crazy, unstable environment, um, and when I. I'm going to just like keep an eye on time because I have a tendency to spend too much time in what it was like and how um, crazy my my eating and my eating disorder was because it sort of still fascinates me to this day. <laughs> like, um, so basically we were, my dad's Israeli, Yemenite Israeli, um, he um, had a, he had basically has lived in a state of PTSD since 17. Like he he lied about his age to fight in the war for independence for Israel, and he saw his best friend exploded, and he spent time in prisoner of war camp in Jordan. He has like shrapnel in his head. He like is, and then he just became like sort of a traveling mystic. And then he accidentally came to Canada to make some money, and accidentally met my mother, who was a very tightly wound, um, nervous wreck of a British nurse. And they accidentally, they accidentally got married. Well, first she accidentally got pregnant. And then within four years, they had four kids. And um, just like my dad was not, he just doesn't live in reality, which, you know, I'm comfortable saying that now because I have made amends to him and I have a great relationship with him. And he's an amazing spiritual man. But he just didn't live in the real world. And, and he didn't ever have plan on being saddled with a wife and all these kids. So 
we he just like moved all over the place and we lived in all these different parts of Canada and my mother didn't work either she still doesn't know how to drive like they're just not my parents are not of of the everyday world and um we were always on welfare or taking hand and and or taking handouts from relatives or the Jewish community and I always comment on this because it, it's very weird being Jewish on welfare. That's about all I have to say about that. <laughs> like, um, there's like certain expectations of being Jewish that did not involve poverty and welfare. And um, for me, like, but, and so it was just like this world of like secrets and lies of like, because there was no obvious way to explain why our family was so poor and why we like, like my dad moved us once when he was fleeing creditors and we were like squatting in this apart, this Israeli guy's apartment building in an empty apartment and we weren't going to school and he changed our last name and there were just like so many things you couldn't explain that I just kind of like, and my, with my siblings, everybody had different stories going at whatever school we happened to be at. So it was just like, I basically just like lived in my imagination and I lived in books and um, I we were also like very health food so food at our house was like you know lentils rice and tofu so whenever I was at somebody else's some kid's birthday party of their house I would just be so excited to eat like hot dogs and candy and McDonald's or whatever and so whenever I so I didn't I would have I'm sure I would have been a chubby kid and an overeater but I didn't have the opportunity to do so but whenever I did um, I just would stuff my face and get this but there was nev- nothing was ever enough. Like, like whatever. I mean, I just remember, like, I, I, to this day, I can conjure up these like very vivid memories of longing for more ice cream, like at an ice cream parlor or at somebody's house. Like, just I would get this sense of like sweet satisfaction from whatever I ate, and then it was not enough. And then I was like, how can I get some more? And I did that like with books and everything. I remember like having a meltdown at the library because if you were under nine, you could only take out five books. And then the thought of like when I would run out of those stories like what was I going to do and um and then my other thing like my other sort of way of self self-soothing um I, I just like had this whole thing that this wasn't my real life like I lived in my mind so I you know at school I was always the new kid I was like really unathletic like that's an understatement like I'm physically retarded to this day like <laughs> I can't I can't parallel park I get mixed up between left and right and I was like, you know, handicapped kids would be picked ahead of me for teams. And um, that's totally not making that up. And um, I was really ugly, and I had huge glasses and eczema and, like, um, just, like, the eye patch for the wandering eye. And, and I was, like, really a social misfit and all that stuff. So I would just, like, hide out in the bathroom at recess and live in my imaginary world. And then, you know, things got better when I got older. But I remember, like, um, a little bit, you know, I just had my all my escapes. Everything was hinging on like I did really well in school. And I was a great reader and I studied really hard. And so I had this whole vision of how I would escape this crazy family life by just doing really well in school and getting away. Um, but I just I did always have that um, food as an escape. So I remember like times when I was little, I would like steal quarters out of my dad's pockets and and go like buy M&Ms and like savor them and little things like that and then I remember like I would say my my eating my food as a solution kind of took off when I was about um 14 I lied about my age to get a job at McDonald's and I just like went, you know was I just 
I loved it. I mean, I love, I'm also just, I loved, one of the many things I, I came to love in OA is just that constant identification that we get um, from other, hearing other people's stories with food. And when I first heard the term volume eater, I was like, yeah, because it's really weird how much I can eat because I'm not a big person. And, um, but, you know, like my ex-husband was a, 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 was a football linebacker in college and has, with a playing weight of 260, but I can eat the same amount of food as him. Like, it's just... I can put away a lot of food. And I remember, like, working at McDonald's, just, like, stuffing my face and then going home and eating whatever rice and tofu concoction was on the stove. And um, just and I, when I was, like, nine, I started obsessing over, like, calories and um, size. And so I would, like, you know, have food as an escape and then obsess about my body and control it and exercise and do all this kind of stuff. And then I started... Um, when I did end up escaping, using, like, my strategies of escape and getting out of that family. And I went to, I got a scholarship to a boarding school, an international boarding school on Vancouver Island. I, we were living in Vancouver at the time. And it was an incredible opportunity, incredible. But, um, you know, just because just my strategy has always been, if reality is too scary and too overwhelming and too weird or too, like, there's discomfort about what people think, like, I, I have to create an alternate, way, an alternate rea- reality or whatever. So I... You know, there were so many incredible opportunities and challenges at that school, and it was out in the forest, and we did all these outdoor activities, and the, these, this incre- incredible academic environment with some of, like, the smartest kids in the world, and, um, you know, I could do some of that, and then, but I also just was binge eating cafeteria food, and I gained, like, 25 pounds in a few months, which is a lot on a small body, and, like, just felt hideous, and then I'd always, like, read about... I'd always been really into, like, after-school specials and young adult novels, so I knew all about eating disorders. And I'd always, like, dreamed of being... I just thought being anorexic would be so cool, like, just to have that level of control and discipline. But that I knew that would never work for me. So um, bulimia seemed really good, too, because I love that idea that rules don't apply to me. I've always had that. It's like, you know, I park where I want. I fight my way out of penalties that I should have to pay. I, like you know, I want to eat whatever I want and not get fat. Like, I get extensions on every paper and project because, you know, I'm so creative. I need more time. And, like, just, you know, believe me, I seem perfect. And, you know, I quickly became very good at it. Um, it's, I, sometimes to this day I can slip into that having, like, a weird pride at what a skillful vomiter I was, like, silent, fast, you know, strategic, you know, how to, you know, layer things and get it in and out. And so I did that as sort of like a weight control technique for – um you know, on and off for a few years, and it it kind of worked. And um, let's see, basically, like I always just had to have some solution. So when things were going better in other areas of my life, like when I was really succeeding academically, like I ended up getting a scholarship to Yale and doing really well there, and I fell in love and had a really serious boyfriend, and I had, um, you know, lots of things seemed to be really good, and I felt like I was escaping, like, you know, my life was going in the direction that I thought it should, then, you know, my food would sort of clean up, and, you know, I, and I never thought of myself as bulimic, even though, even in the years when I wasn't, like, terribly bulimic, I would still strategically throw up when I felt like I ate too much, but it just seemed like a normal thing to me, like, it didn't seem like, I mean, it was a secret, but for some reason, my mind thought it was, like, okay, like, it's just what I do, um, and it, what, I mean, just, wanted to kind of accelerate through this part, but, um, you know, when things were going pretty well, I just felt like I was a normal eater, and I went through a whole period in my 20s, like, I went to sort of graduate school and did really well there, but um, 
you know, I've also just always had this thing of like I, and I think this is like the hallmark of of everyone who has our disease is just that I don't like life on life's terms. I don't like things that are difficult. I don't like things that are scary. I don't, um, you know, I have that take my toys and go home syndrome. When things don't turn out the way <laughs> I, I, I think they should, I'll just leave. And, you know, what I was seeing in, in grad school, like, I like to apply for stuff and win stuff and get grants and get accolades and, like, you know, be be admired. I, was, I remember somebody in one of the rooms once said, like, I would always rather be... I always wanted to be envied rather than loved, and that was kind of how I felt. Like, I just wanted people, I wanted my life to look really good and people to envy it, and then who cares what kind of junk is going on in the inside. And then, so, you know, grad school, it would have been, like, another, like, five years of, like, intensive research and study and economic uncertainty and all that stuff, and it just seemed like, too, whenever things are just too much, I just leave, like, relationships or, you know, school or jobs. I just, I just want, like, a really... I want to be, like, cocooned in, like, flannel pajamas and down duvets and, and have the phone unplugged and eat ice cream and just, like, ha- I want, like, safety. I want my life to feel like a cocoon. And that's I know that's not the case anymore. Like, I, I've learned how much joy there is in just, um, you know, like the, um, oh, I can't remember a chapter of the 12 and 12 that just talks about the happiness that comes from obligations squarely met and from just doing what we're supposed to do in our life and the spirituality of just doing what I've promised that I'm going to do. And, you know, that's kind of the kind of happiness that I, that I find now, but it was really different for me then. Um, anyway, so I left grad school and I had this corporate career and, um, you know, I nothing really turned out the way I thought it was and I didn't get married and I didn't have kids and I, like, derailed a couple of jobs and, um, you know, I lost, I made tons of money and lost tons of money in that tech stock boom and um, I just, through it all, like, uh, one thing I, I did too that I've also heard people talk about in, in these rooms that's helped me a lot is, like, I think I disguised my um, my compulsive overeating with sort of like gourmet trappings. Like, I became a really good cook and I'd have these fantastic dinner parties, but everything was an excuse for my drinking and my overeating. Um, and, you know, I remember like going to this this like butcher shop and buying like three kinds of duck fat <laughs> stuff like that and just ma- making these like elaborate dishes and then you know if I ate too much I would just throw up I mean that was just like it seems like that's what the Romans did you know I just didn't really have a problem with it um, and then the way it all a lot of I mean it's hard for me I know this is Overeaters Anonymous but a lot of my abuse of food is tied up with my abuse of alcohol and when one was up the other was down and things like that but when I was getting really um, you know t- early early to mid 30s is kind of when, when the wheels came off and um, just to give you a snapshot of that period and then I'll move on to recovery but like I had basically destroyed my finances lost I think I lost like, like $80,000 in the stock market and lost this condo that I owned and all kinds of stuff and none of my relationships were turning out, and I was getting a bad reputation from my, some of my party behavior. And um, so I, I just couldn't deal with anything. And so just a very, like, typical weekend for me would be, um, like, I ha- I'd have some work contracts. So I'd be at a client's office, and the only way I'd get through it would be thinking about what alcohol and food I was going to buy at the end of the day. And I would go to some supermarket, buy two bottles of wine, buy, um, like, a whole bunch of, like, frozen food and just junk and then I'd get, like, a whole set of, like, a whole season of some series, like, Six Feet Under or something suitably morbid. <laughs> and then I would just, like, get mildly drunk, stuff my face, throw up, get more drunk, throw up, get 
eat more, throw up. And the whole time it would be like I'd park my car two blocks away so no one knew I was home. My phones would be unplugged. And then I just felt like I was, I had stopped time. Like, I felt like I was taking a break from life and that nothing was really going on. And then it would, I'd get out of this and it would all become better. Like, that's, I sort of, like, believed that somehow, that that was real. Like, I mean, just, it, it just got really, really bad. And then... I got this idea that my salvation was I started dating this guy I knew in college who lived down here in LA and um, we had started this like crazy long distance relationship and um, that this there always I was always looking for like some answer to like what was wrong with me to like this constant like anxiety and discomfort and fear and like just how I just could never get over like how different my life looked from the way it was supposed to and and how like uncomfortable I felt and how like everybody else seemed to be doing so much better and, and like I'd get obsessed with the past and all this kind of stuff and um, I ended up just a, a lot of different things happened but I, I moved down here to be with him in LA um, I'd gotten sober in AA and it, this was totally against sponsor direction I think I had maybe like 7 or 8 months of sobriety um, and, and I was still like on and off throwing up but that sort of seemed like it wasn't really happening or it wasn't my real problem and, you know, whatever the craziness was. And um, I came down here, um, you know, we were going to get engaged, um, and this was just going to solve all my problems, basically, like becoming a, becoming a wife and a mother. And he had these two little girls. His wife had been killed by a drunk driver when the little girls were three months old and three years old. And um, I'd been involved with them for a couple of years, and... I came down here and then I'd been here maybe five weeks and I found a lump in my breast on Molly's eighth birthday and then I two weeks after that I was diagnosed with a very aggressive invasive breast cancer and it had gotten into one of my lymph nodes and it was like um, an advanced stage two slash borderline stage three and it was just nonstop um, almost a whole year of like I had four surgeries I had really intense chemotherapy and this other experimental drug and it was just crazy fear and um, I had only just started to sort of work the steps in AA but not really I didn't really like I just didn't really fully I'd always been into like psychiatrists and, and coaches and you know everything else that I thought would solve my problems and I just didn't wholeheartedly believe in this stuff and um, and I certainly wasn't dealing with my eating disorder that just seemed like I don't know and it was really weird because I I remember um, you know, being given all this, like, anti-nausea stuff and, like, them talking to me about vomiting and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, like, that's such not an issue for me. It's just so, I don't know, like, who wouldn't want to vomit? It just seemed... And I, oh, I remember I had this vision that I would get really skinny because I'd seen lots of really skinny cancer people in movies. And instead I got, like, bloated from um, cortisol drugs and um, all this kind of stuff. And I was just so like dissatisfied with (laughs) and then and then I I, even though you know I was being told I went to this oncology nutritionist and all this stuff I was still like on and off binging binging and purging and what made it so much worse is like I really really like it was my dream to be a mom and I was getting to be a full-time mom to these little girls who were so precious to me and I was you know teaching them about nutrition and cooking them all this food Sandra B who's in, in these rooms she just shares about like what a torture it is to be a mother and being trying so hard to be a healthy model for your kids and to 
to feed them well and you, you can't like against your own will you're driving around binge eating and I just remember this one time I just never ever want to forget this if I ever ever think that I'm normal and that I can just go out there and like you know eat with the normies um, I dropped Maddie off at this kindergarten party that where you were it was it's, parents are so excited when it's a drop off party because you don't have to stay with your kids <laughs> and <laughs> so but she was howling and she didn't want me to leave and she was clinging to my hand but my whole vision was like I knew exactly where I was going to drive what food I was going to get and where I was going to throw up and how I would get back clean up and get back in time to pick her up and I, I remember yanking her hand out of mine and like leaving her there at that party um, and this, telling this other lying to some other mom and saying I had an emergency at the house I had to get to and just like and and then like the more you do stuff like that, the more you have to eat because you can't you can't live with that feeling that you've just like broken your little kid's heart, and um you know and that was like while I was in cancer treatment I and mean, it was just craziness and what ended up happening like this is kind of more my AA story but you know I just got into so much self pity and such a lack of recovery um, spiritual recovery um, in my in my that year of cancer that um, I just unraveled everything I ended up. Um, when I just putting like a bunch of vanilla and some hot milk because I just really needed to relax and that was like enough alcohol to set me off and I ended up um, relapsing and losing that marriage and losing those kids and I had destroyed every I destroyed everything in my life I um, was locked up in a hotel room trying to kill myself for a couple of days and not having the courage to go through with it um, I ended up in a lockdown full on like lockdown mental ward for 10 days and it was really hard to get out because basically because I wasn't I should I mean I kept trying to kill myself while I was locked up too and um, the only thing I went this is so horrible to say but when I got out of there and I was like remanded into inpatient treatment for bulimia depression and alcohol and got you know everything else that's wrong with me but um, I just remember being so excited at how thin I was because <laughs> I was so you know horribly depressed and everything that I couldn't eat and I remember like looking in the mirror before I went into inpatient treatment like admiring the way my hip bones stuck out of my jeans and then you know when I was in that treatment center you know I had to go to like this nutritionist and this food recovery group and all this kind of stuff and you know explore all the underlying causes of my eating disorder but it just didn't all really seem that serious to me all I wanted to do was prove my sobriety and win back my husband and those children and um, you know that didn't it didn't work out that way and um, what happened though is I did I had a moment of spiritual surrender actually when I was like locked up in that um, in the nut house and I did totally throw myself into AA and, and really start to work the steps in that program and um, you know I I started to find this incredible freedom and this, the, the compulsion to, to drink was completely completely removed from me and and there were a number of other things that like just evidence that God was working in my life in the sense like I believed in the miracle uh, of the steps and I believed that there was a God working in my life but what ended up happening is like the more you know I still have this total um, my I, de I default to like just not being able to function in the world and not being able to accept things as they are and my as it turns out you know so recovery in one program is not um, a, a solution to um, what what we have as, as overeaters and as bulimics and the more recovery I gained in in that program um, the worse my eating disorder got and um, 
and at the same time, I was still finishing cancer treatment at that time, and I remember I was going to this oncology nutritionist who had me on this program of, like, you know, eating the rainbow, fruits and vegetables, and, like, you know, it was very specific, all the stuff I had to do, and I was, it was recommended to me because of the type of breast cancer I had to get my body fat was, like, supposed to be in the low 20s, and it was, like, mine was actually 29, even though I wasn't that heavy. It's like I'm this little popsicle stick wrapped in bacon or something. <laughs> and um, I just was, like, I wasn't exercising, and so, so I would do this program that she gave me, like, for three or four days, and I would just feel amazing, and then I would be, like, hitting four drive throughs and throwing up four times. And, and I just couldn't, like, all of it just seemed to be, like, against my own will, you know. And what ended up happening is my um, AA sponsor could see how, the, how what was, she, she said, you're going to drink over this. Um, you know, I'd be at a meeting, we had this women's meeting that we go to in our group where there's all this food out, and I would eat half the food on the table and then miss part of the meeting because I was in the bathroom throwing up, and I just thought it was, like, really secretive the way I was doing it. And so um, that sponsor told um we're in the same home group as um, Leslie, and she said, why don't you go talk to Leslie, because she hasn't thrown up in 22 years, and whatever she tells you to do, I want you to do it. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I was completely, completely unwilling, and um, I just remember, like, I had, we were in a super strong, super structured, really rigorous, like, you know, our home group needs business, and uh, I just came to OA and thought it was all, like, weak and watered down and lame, and I just didn't want to hear people talk about their problems, and I didn't want to identify, and, but I was following Spencer direction, and what happened is I got, I came for a few months, I got instant recovery, I stopped throwing up, I got fit, lost some weight, I felt like I was done, and so I just told Leslie that I wasn't coming back, and, um, and then I said, well, what do you think? <laughs> and she said, um, well, I don't think there's such a thing as social vomiting. <laughs> I think that um, she says, I think that you're probably going to be back. Um, I, she said, I think you'll probably be throwing up again soon. And I was just like, oh, God, she doesn't know anything. And then uh, within probably four or five weeks, I was throwing up again. And, you know, we talk about how this is a progressive illness. I can tell you that that was absolutely the case for me because in the following, like, five months, it got worse than it had ever, ever been. I mean, I was throwing up five or six times a day. I was, like, disappearing from work and eating. I was throwing up in my car and bags. I was, like, um, I mean... It was, it was like one long blackout, uh, and I just, but I was too proud to come back, and I could see how it was destroying all parts of my life, but I was like, well, I'm sober, and, you know, I'm, this is just a phase, and honestly, I don't even know what I was thinking, but I just couldn't, I couldn't come back, I was too proud, and it just seemed so ridiculous to me to have to go to two 12-step programs, like, that just seemed so wrong on so many levels, it was like, what about, what about my life, like, when am I going to, like, have a boyfriend, or when am I, you know, just like, you think about, God, you think about, like, the amount of time and money you spend, for me, the time, amount of time and money and insanity and, like, the mental real estate that's consumed by this disease, and then to think that I don't have time to, like, go to extra meetings, you know, it's crazy, and uh, I, I'll tell you, this, I really like to share this story because um, this, I think that uh, we may not know it, but we carry the message everywhere we go, like, just by our behavior and what we do in our everyday life, because I'd gone to this um, New Year's Day party, this, like, chili party um, in our home group they have every year, stuffed my face, I couldn't talk to anybody, I was like, all I could think about is how much I could eat there, where I would go next, what food I was going to get, where I was going to throw up, then what I was going to do, and then how I, w- how I would, like, numb out with movies or something and hide. And that was going to be my New Year's Day, and that was in 2009. Um, and then I went that night. 
um, I was at the Whole Foods in Santa Monica, and I'd went in kind of thinking I would just get something healthy, but I, I didn't really think that. And then there's a lot of unhealthy food at Whole Foods. <laughs> so I had like some giant vat of lasagna and a six-pack of devil's food cake cupcakes, and I was going to just eat it in my car and throw up. It was like a done deal. And I was in the elevator going down, and Michael was in there, and I'd remembered him from an OA meeting. Um, and he he had clearly like lost another 50 pounds at least, and he didn't remember me, and and I just didn't even make eye contact with him. But he was like making chipper conversation with people in the elevator, and <laughs> like I could see um, I could see the food in his grocery bag was like super healthy food, and he just like he radiated happiness, and he just like I wanted to feel like the way he looked. I wanted to feel like the happiness that was radiating from him. And I could see the difference between him when I knew him like six or seven months ago in OA or when I saw him around and when I saw him that day. And so it was like everything about that moment was a testament that OA worked. And so in my head, I was just like, oh, that's it. I guess I'm going back to OA. And I went back the next day. And then I think I threw up the day after that. And then the day after that was my abstinence date. And I've held on to that. Like, like I will hold on to that. And I will do anything to hold on to that date because I do not want to live in that world again. Um, I... That was a horrible, horrible, horrible way to live, especially once I had been in OA and had a little bit of recovery and left and left with my my pride and stubbornness and total unwillingness to surrender. And um, I came back and it was, um, and I was too proud to ask Leslie to sponsor me again because I hated it that she was right. I still struggle with how much she's right <laughs> all the time. Like, I'll go do something my way and do something, and then I'm like, damn it, she's right again. So, <laughs> um, like, just this year alone, she basically talked me out of moving back to Canada because it, it was already a done deal in my mind, and she basically told me to stop talking about it, stop thinking about it, and invest in my life here. And, you know, like, she just kept going, you don't know what God has in store for you. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, I freaking do, and it's terrible. This life sucks. <laughs> and then little, like, I followed some simple direction from her, and, like, a whole bunch of things in my life completely turned around. And now I'm getting a green card, and I got a promotion at work, and I have a boyfriend, and, like, just all these things. Anyway, and so I was just like... But back then, I, had, I did, after about three or four months of other OA sponsors who were, like, much easier on me and told me to, like, take baths and tell myself that I loved myself. And, <laughs> like, you know, the, I went back with the tough love approach, <laughs> Leslie, which is, is always, like, why don't you think about yourself a little less and why don't you see who you can help? It's, <laughs> like, no need to go to the spa. <laughs> um, so... I did end up asking her to sponsor me. And I just wanted to tell you, too, like, you know, the, our school of sponsorship, and this is how I sponsor the girls that, that I'm, I've had the opportunity to sponsor a lot of girls in OA. I have four sponsees right now. I've had as many as seven or eight. But a lot of people don't really want to do the work that we kind of do in our lineage, I guess. And it's five meetings a week and five commitments and um, three outreach calls a day and um, um, taking on any, any service position that you're asked to do, speaking when you're asked to speak, and um, I call Leslie every day, no matter what, um, doing my stop work as it's assigned. You know, it's pretty serious. And that I, I did, I, like, that exactly like what happened when I surrendered in AA. When I totally surrendered in OA, the compulsion to throw up was gone, and it has never come back, and it's never occurred to me to throw up. And I can't explain that. I mean, um, and I, but I struggled for probably a year and a half with binge eating, and I gained weight. Um, and I, I hated the way I looked, and I got into a lot of I, a lot of self-created misery. You know, I love the, both the Big Book and the Twelve and Twelve talk about how all of my problems are of my own making, and I had a lot of problems that were of my own making. I still like periodically isolated, I binge ate, 
I didn't exercise. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't use everything that was available to me in this program. And um, and then I then um, God bless Leslie for this too. And I know Brooke, you talked about this as well. Um, you know, because I kept wanting to change my abstinence to be no no binge eating, no vomiting. You know, add all these things, no sugar. And Leslie's like, why don't you just keep it really simple? Why don't you just not throw up? Why don't you just not throw up? How about that? <laughs> and she's just told me like she's seen girls that have changed their abstinence. And, you know, if you start doing no binging and then you binge and you have to start over, like, why wouldn't you just start throwing up again? And she, she said, and I've seen this now so many times, that a lot of girls, who, whoever, people, when people start throwing up again, sometimes you can't stop. Like, sometimes you get back into that. And I don't want to die that way. And I've, I've seen people in this program, in and out of these rooms, like bulimics that are dying of bulimia. And I've known people that have died of all the health complications of that. And because of my cancer risk and everything else that's going on, I, I can't take a risk like that, you know. So I'm just keeping it really simple and just I just one day at a time I don't throw up. And um, and then, like, everything Leslie said in terms of, like, if, you, if I just keep um, showing up, I keep doing what I did another set of steps with her, um, you know, if I just keep doing the stuff I'm supposed to do, um, I started sponsoring a lot. I made a lot of food-related amends. Actually, I have to go back to all these stores. I used to like go to the whole food salad bar. I hate their. I think it's way overpriced. So I would eat about half of what I bought before I paid for it to bring it down to a reasonable price range. And <laughs> Leslie's point was like, well, if you don't like it at their prices, you don't have to <laughs> shop there. So I had to. I went back to like five Whole Foods and a Ralph's, and I basically just have to find a manager and say, you know, I'm in a 12-step recovery program, and I used to like, you know eat your salad bar food without paying for it. I didn't say because I thought it was overpriced. And then, um, and then I paid them back. And some of them took my money, um, right, just rang it up as a purchase. And, but this, I, some of it was really amazing. Like this one guy, this one, the place I stole the most from, it was about $120 because I used to do it all the time. Um, he, he looked like he was going to cry. And he said, um, he, said I, he said, you know, you don't have to do this. Nobody knew about it. And I said, well, I have to do this because this is how I'm going to stay um, going to keep my recovery because I can't live with um, the bad things that I've done and I need to ha live a clean and honest life and he started telling me about how he has these two drug addicted nephews who've been in and out of recovery and, and he, like he really wants them to get it and um, and he just like he held my hand like, he like touched my arm and he was like I really really commend you for what you're doing and you're, you're inspirational and he said you know, there's a lot of hungry people everywhere. My store doesn't need your money. Why don't you just donate it to somebody who's hungry somewhere mm -hmm. and just keep doing what you're doing because the more people who who are living in recovery, you know, maybe it will reach my, my nephews. It was really, really beautiful. And I had some, through all my amends, I've had amazing, amazing experiences. Um, like all my relationships with my family are totally cleaned up. You know, even in recovery, like when in my sobriety, but before I had OA recovery, like I love my sisters. They're my best friends in the world, and I miss my family in Canada a lot, and um, I have these amazing nieces and nephews, and my little sister, after I made amends to her and restored that relationship, she had a little baby last December and named her after me, which was really, really amazing. And But I would visit them sometimes, and we'd have these great experiences, and then I would be like secret eating at night and like you know throwing up in their toilets and stuff like that in recovery in my AA recovery and I don't do that anymore and it just I just um I wish for all of you I wish for every single person in this room to be able to have the peace that I have around food you know I was just at um Leslie's salon that's why my hair looks so fabulous <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's like <laughs> 
she was like, there's this like this insane table of like Yuletide delights, which is like everything that I love, you know, everything chocolatey and creamy and heaps of it. And like in the past, even even in this earlier in my recovery, like that if if I if I was eating it, I, my whole day would be lost, obsessing about what I ate and how much and how was I going to get rid of it or not or when would I eat more. Like it would just it would completely take me prisoner. And then if I didn't eat it, I would still be obsessed with it. But to be able to just, like, walk past it, make a joke about it to Leslie, and then to just not be interested, like, how do you explain that, you know? Like, a lot of normies can't even do that. Like, just that level of peace and comfort. And then um, I wanted to take some questions, um, if you guys have any, but um, I just wanted to put in a plug for sponsorship, because I noticed in a lot of OA rooms, like, a lot of people either think they can't be a sponsor, or they don't have time to do it, or that they have a couple, so they're too busy to do more or whatever. But, like, that, I, that... The more I sponsor and the more I put my hand out and the more I call newcomers, like, the better my recovery gets. And um, I wish Marina was here. She's in Portland right now, but she's a new sponsee of mine, and she's doing amazingly well, and Charlotte and um, Sally, who just moved to New York. But, like, like just to see the miracle take place in their life. Like, even I'll be – I can be having the worst day when I'm screwing up at work and hating myself and, like, mad at somebody in my head or, you know, whatever. Like, we all have those times in recovery – and then I'll get some urgent text or some call from one of my sponsees, and then I give them some direction. That's usually like a verbatim repetition of something Leslie has said to me, because everything she said to me is like burned in my brain. And then I'll, and then they'll text me back or call me and be like, "Oh my God, this happened and that happened," and then my boss said this, and then like that's how I constantly see the miracle working, and that's how I get better. You know what I mean? Like, and it me, it makes me walk the walk. Like I behave so much better when my sponsees are around, or like when I'm meeting them to do something, and then. Also, like, um, it keeps me in my step work because I have all my original step work in this, like, tabbed binder and it's all organized. And, and then my additional step work is in a supplementary section. And <laughs> then I, like, but I have to, like, every time I go back to that, it's so exciting because I remember, like, all, I did all this stuff for six and seven. And then I listened to the Sandy Beach CD and then this happened. Oh my God, I forgot about that. So I have to, like, continually, continually pass it on or it's just not. Like, that, that is the solution to, to ever, you know, and, and there's the constant, like, the level of, the way my relationship with God has completely transformed through um, just continuing to see the miracles in my life and others. It just becomes where I just continually talk to God during the day, and everything, like, all of that is just kind of integrated into my day, if that makes any sense. So, um, I guess it's already kind of too late, like, maybe, um, oh, thank you for letting me share, and then if anybody has any questions. I guess it's it's more like just a feeling. Um, like I like I I sort of because I'm very like weirdly obsessive and I'm very listy. I always have a lot of lists, so I keep lists of like all the miracles, <laughs> and then I like I just think about them, and then I do that that golden key thing from that Emmett Fox little golden key thing with that where you just repeat like God is joy, God is peace, God is freedom, God surrounds me with His love, and it's like sort of a mantra, I guess, and um, it's just this this feeling. Like, and then I just, like, and sometimes he's kind of more of a person that's all powerful, and sometimes he's just, like, this force, and, um, but it, I guess the experiences with God, like, every time I'm totally open to a new experience with God, and every time I surrender something completely, which is very hard for me to do, but when I do, like, just amazing things happen, so it's more like just a, a feeling that envelops me, I guess. Um, I, I guess, 
I think about, I just think about all the other examples of, thing, of things that I have surrendered and what happened. And then I think about how much suffering am I willing, like I, I guess, I have to get into a lot of suffering to surrender. Like, because I can really delude myself into thinking that my control and managed systems are working. And then, but I guess, you know what, it's, it's all about sponsorship and being sponsored too. Because I'll, I'll just, even if I'm, I know I'm not taking the right actions, like I just did that the other day with Leslie, like there was something I knew I was supposed to be doing and I wasn't doing it, but I called her and told her that I wasn't doing it and I wasn't willing. And then she left me a message and I listened to it and then I surrendered it. And it was a work project that I had to get done and then it turned out amazing, do you know what I mean? Or I'm just like telling a sponsee about it and I realize what I'm not surrendering and how, like, and, the, and the, like, I'll hear the freedom in, in her voice, in the sponsee's voice, and I compare that with the knots in my stomach and the fear, and I don't want that, you know? Like, I want my life to keep getting better and better, and, and it is. But it's really hard. <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry, sorry, we're done. But ask me afterwards. <laughs> Thank you.